Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Um, if this is your first time on radio, please check out the website, V hyphen or V minus radio archives of more shows like this one. Views with scientists, the few good ones, documentary filmmakers, uh, lots of other activists in this world and different events and matters that basically concern any activist, regardless of what group you're from, um, you will definitely take something away from listening to V-Radio. In addition, you go to that, uh, you will find a list of free documentaries you can watch on the Internet that I strongly urge activists of any persuasion to check out because they're critical information to understanding what's going on in this world. Uh, today, my guest name is Chris. Um, I will introduce him shortly. Uh, it is my intention to start V Radio up again in the month of December. My hours have been drastically cut at work. Um, the excuse they're giving is the implementation of Obamacare. Um, I'll be making considerably less, and it's been once again proving tough to make it neat. So, I'd like to go back to work for all of you, my listeners, who I have, you know, basically worked like this for before. And I would really appreciate it if you appreciate the work that I do in V Radio that you drop a donation in my donation widget. Um, there's a fundraiser account on Facebook you can use. Uh, to my fans of V Radio Facebook page. You can still just use the website donation bar, and I will deactivate the fundraiser as soon as I meet my goal, which is only $200. Um, that will help me get to where I need to be, so no reason to be greedy. Um, in any case, uh, I have a lot lined up. I'm going to be talking to a few of my previously popular guests, like Ben Stewart, Peter Joseph, Danny Shine, um, Charlie Veach, uh, some of the more uh, popular guests that I've had in the past to kind of get an opportunity to talk to them again about you know, where their life and their activism is at. Uh, I also intend on having that follow-up show with Michael Shanklin, as previously promised. Um, I don't know if I'm going to bother to bring Victor Pross onto my show or not. Uh, he seems to be an artist of kind of walking around and you know, either lying or inventing theories about what the Zeitgeist Movement stands for. And when I called him to task on his nonsense, uh, he basically ran away, quote-unquote, with egg on his fail- face and tail between his legs, which is to quote something he once said about me. Um, and as a result, I've kind of lost my patience for him. The guy's just kind of a hack who managed to get invited onto a couple of important things. And um, as a result, there are some people who listen to him, I guess, but I much prefer if I'm going to talk to an anarcho-capitalist, talking to somebody like Michael Shanklin, you know, who I still don't agree with, and who is still saying some things that I would say are inaccurate about the Zeitgeist Movement, but at least he took the time to listen um, and ask questions of somebody who actually knew what they were talking about. Whether or not he absorbed that information, time will tell. Um, so, all of that said, uh, Chris, welcome to V Radio. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. I appreciate it. Now, Chris, uh, as I told you off the air, I have a tradition on V Radio that every time I bring a new person on, uh, presuming, of course, that they're an activist, I ask them a critical question, and that is, what was the precipice for you? What is the moment that made you um, change from just being an, a regular uh, sheep in this world to being an activist? Well, I can remember a moment specifically when I was young. I believe I was about six years old when I was walking around um, a department store 
And I noticed that the crap that was for sale was basically the same crap from the previous year. And it occurred to me, where is all this stuff coming from? Um, how can the companies continue to produce this stuff? It was around the Christmas season. How can, how can companies continue to produce this stuff year after year? Where is it coming from? And I was far too young to reason my way out of that. So it just kind of slipped into the background. But um, I would say mostly in the last five years, um, one of the things that pushed me was the first Zeitgeist movie. I'd never considered concepts like that before, um, especially uh, the concept of money. I'd, I'd never thought about it, which is a little embarrassing because I have two college degrees. Uh, I spent a great deal of time and money studying in college and to do well getting some pieces of paper, but had never considered uh, anything about money, anything about the economy, these unquestioned, um, uh, th these things that we just take for granted. And when I watched Zeitgeist and Zeitgeist Addendum, I just thought, wow, what, what, what is this? Uh, what money isn't real money, you know, and then that just kind of opened the floodgates to uh, other things. Um, uh, questioning animal rights, questioning um, the the government, uh, realizing that it's it's basically just fiction, and I've seen now uh, I would say in the past ten years, jeez, uh, hundreds of documentaries. I've read thousands of articles and dozens and dozens of books. My journey's taking me from um, a initially an, an Alex Jones fan, a minarchist. Um, then I began to question that because I was never into patriotism. And there's there's way too much religion on that show. Uh, it's basically, and I know Alex Jones doesn't represent all the minarchists, but when I hear you're kind of a bad person if you don't believe in God, I mean, that just made me look elsewhere. Then I moved on to uh, examining capitalism. That never sat well with me either. Like, a, if you just take a little bunny rabbit, it's worth $10 at the store. I mean, that, that just bothers me. I mean, it... it the, the rabbit it has value in and of itself. It values its own life, and why are we selling it for 10 bucks? And then capitalism, I, I was able to, to, to uh, work my way out of that intellectually, and then the resource-based economy, which I like and is an is a interesting idea. Um, I have fundamental disagreements with it, so beyond that, I moved to primitivism, which is currently where I'm at. My, my thoughts are always evolving, um, People have uh, called me the 180 because sometimes I just turn my back because if I find new information on stuff, I want you know I'll, I will change my mind, and I think that's a good way of, of of living or at least dealing with knowledge. If you find something and you're wrong, well, you are wrong. Everybody's wrong sometimes, you know. Sure, for sure. Now, um, I guess uh, can you talk more about like I guess where you go from watching Zeitgeist movies and the discussion of the resource-based economy, uh, moving on to primitivism, um, as opposed to Jack Fresco's visions talked about in the in the film? Well, I found I actually by accident found an article by an author named Derek Jensen who has been hugely influential in my thinking, and then uh, John Zerzan. These these people question they bring questions even further. They question time. They question language, um, which are perfectly, uh, just, just to briefly, time. Uh, we are all, we all have watches. We all have alarms. We all have schedules. We all have clocks. And it, 
has made us a slave to these things. I mean, everybody's got to be somewhere at some time, or the entire society without time, without rigid standards of time, would collapse. And then language, um, again, very briefly, try to try to describe racism or uh, religion without words. I mean, it's, it's impossible. Mm-hmm. Language also has has allowed one group of people to control another. And while I, I I'm not necessarily a, a person who 100% agrees with all of this. I just think that the, the questions asked in, in uh, the Zeitgeist movies need to be taken even further. Why have a civilization? Why have cities? Why have any of the things that are put forward in this? Um, and a, a lot of the answers I've gotten back is just because it suits humans. It, uh, it, it seems like a world full of circular cities would it would it would be detrimental to animals and nature, but it would benefit humans greatly. And the one thing really is in the title itself, the word resource. Resource is a word that's always bothered me. It's a word that humans invented to marginalize whatever they need at the time. A tree is a resource. Uh, an animal is a resource. Um, even a, even people can be resources. And if anyone needs evidence of that, just go down to your human resources department. Um, it's just it, it's a word like taxation instead of theft or war instead of murder it uh it, it just justifies behavior that that i'm not comfortable with so basically i guess what you're saying um is that it kind of comes down to the idea of things like animals and plants being treated as commodities as opposed to living creatures with value yeah that that's correct um i i don't think that people in uh, learn properly to uh, engage in, in, in relationships correctly with nature, with uh, like a tree. I mean, there's a, there's a great um, a Canadian lumberman, and his name escapes me right now. I remember reading. Um, he said, "When I see trees, I see dollar bills. And if you see trees and you see dollar bills, you're going to treat one way. If you see trees." And you see, if you see trees as trees, you're going to treat them another way. And if you see this particular tree as this particular tree, you're going to treat it another way still. And to marginalize that into a resource, is, it, it just doesn't sit with me. Well, I, I guess I see where you're coming from. Um, I think it's important to note that um, like I went through a, a phase of my life where I obviously still... Um, you know, have a, a soft spot, so to speak, for anarcho-primitivist thought from what I've been exposed to it. And I've also, on occasion, recommended Derek Jensen to some people. Um, I quote, uh, in particular, there's this quote about hierarchy, uh, more specifically about violence and hierarchy, that I even quoted at my recent Zeitgeist Day presentation here in Michigan. Um, and that's the part about how, for some reason, violence is always invisible as long as it's moving down the perceived hierarchy, but is considered this huge problem if it's you know going up the perceived hierarchy. Um, and I don't want to get into a tangent on that. I could talk about that forever. But you know, I thought that was a very astute observation. I think that um, one of the major major differences that you're going to find, for example, a, a Venus Project person oriented person does not look at a tree and see dollar signs, um, and while he might see wood, uh, the Venus Project wants to see science used in such a way that harming the environment is no longer an option. As in, technology that harms the environment just isn't built in the first place. It's not codified. It's not marginalized. It's not justified. You know, you, they just you just don't do it. 
you know, if you can't do it in a way that is still friendly with the environment, then don't. I mean, I guess would be the way to put it. There's no pollution. There's not, you know, um, all of the designs that Fresco talks about, you know, and generally just within the methodology itself, uh, do not permit looking at things in that way. And as I told you off the air, uh, Fresco pretty much is of the opinion that, you know, the vast majority of the planet should just go back to its natural state. Um, the cities and the dwellings, you know, like you said, you know, it wouldn't just be a planet full of circular cities. You're talking about, yeah, there'll be circular cities on the planet, but they're, you know, they're, they're not all lined up next to each other. We're not by any means talking about, say, uh, like Coruscant from Star Wars, which is like a city, like a planet that's covered with city, um, is not something that the Venus Project would advocate either. But that's largely because uh, the Venus Project also acknowledges that we are part of a system, you know, that, you know, it's important that we keep the Earth healthy because we live here. And it has a much uh, better point of view when it comes to um, the things that we live here on this planet, like getting rid of zoos, you know, make observation uh, you know, dwellings so that you can watch the creatures in their own habitats rather than forcibly taking them somewhere else. Um, you know, there's a whole holistic approach to the way that animals and plants are treated. Um, and in particular, you know, Jacques also wants to get to the point where you don't have to kill animals for meat anymore because you can engineer, you know, meat that's not, you know, was never a living organism that people can have. Um, you know, he sees the same thing eventually, perhaps for plants. Um, you could you could basically evolve past the need to ever um, harm another living organism again with the proper or, you know operation of science. So, I guess I mean you know I don't want to debate it back and forth. In that, yes, I recognize what you're talking about. I guess I just kind of wanted to clarify that while I understand the perspective of not you know of, of not uh, favoring technology as an approach. Um, I did want to very much differentiate between the capitalist view of what a tree or living organisms are and between a Venus Project view of what a tree and living organisms are because they're not by any means the same. And we think pretty much the profit motive, um, you know, just like you said, the guy with the dollar signs in his eyes looking at trees is a textbook example of why we're destroying the planet and why we're not thinking about the environment in a way that is sustainable by any stretch of the imagination is because we, that essentially turns everything into, like, like I said before, it, it turns it into a commodity. It turns it into something to be bartered, sold, traded. And in the marketplace, there's no respect really given to the long-term impact. You know, they all say that they do, but, you know, because, of course, good PR, you know, you have to at least pretend to care about the environment, but... You know, did anybody really stop buying BP gasoline when they ruined that portion of the ocean? No, not really. Some environmentalists probably did, but in comparison to, like, the rest of them, you know, the world just kept on trucking. Um, so, I, you know, I don't want to rant about it. I think you get where I'm coming from. I just wanted to clarify that, well, we still probably disagree about the application of science. We do still both value um living creatures. I'm a guy who literally does not kill spiders. <laughs> um, there, there was a wasp nest like right over my door and I just went online and I researched yellow jackets and figured out yellow jackets only attack humans if you hit their house 
and they spend the rest of their time killing spiders and other harmful creatures and um, getting rid of them. And I'm like, why would I care that this thing lives in my door? This sounds great. And, you know, lo and behold, I'd go in and out my door and the yellow jackets would occasionally maybe bounce into me or whatever because they might be in my way, but, you know, they didn't attack me. And they lived there safely for weeks. There was no problem. You know, that's an example of using science to really understand, you know, how to coexist with the environment around you. So, um, but let's talk more about uh, what you believe to be the basis of anarcho-primitivist thought. If you were going to explain anarcho-primitivism as a school of anarchism, uh, what would you say sets it apart? Um, I just want to address two things you said very briefly. You, sure. Your language is, we're destroying the planet. Mm-hmm. I try not to use we in in like that at all like when when people in the united states we've invaded another country we didn't do anything you and i definitely didn't when you say things like that when you say we it's you're kind of identifying with your oppressors so i know it's subtle and i'm just nitpicking but just so you know and also for someone to see the 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 tree as wood i mean what i want and this is going to segue into the question you just asked is just for someone to see the tree as a tree the tree is an ecosystem. The tree is a lot of creatures' homes. Uh, the, the tree is a living, sentient creature. That I mean, the, the nerve endings of trees are very similar to... I'm sorry, the uh, roots of trees are very similar to nerve endings. Um, if I were to explain anarcho-primitivism to people, it's the belief in a simpler way of life and the deindustrialization of society. It's an absolute rejection of capitalism. Um, it's a rejection of authoritarianism in any kind and of domination. In uh, in, in article, in, in pre- I'm just going to call it AP. In AP, there is there are no hierarchies. Um, mo- anthropology in the last 20 years has made a lot of advances in showing that the um, and, and just to clarify, when I'm when I'm talking about primitive peoples, it's people over 10,000 years ago, the Paleolithic era. When humans moved into the Neolithic era, it was marked by agriculture, which uh, it, it, agriculture made humans, it, it really damaged them. It, uh, it made them shorter, it rotted their bones, rotted their teeth, and then humans picked up a lot of diseases from the animals that they were communing with. Um, so prior to that, though, the societies that people lived in it was smaller it was just small bands of people there were no cities there were no pieces of there was no private property it was just people living with the earth um it people did not grow food food grew people there was very little fighting unless people uh encountered a warlike band of people i know a lot of people like to uh to talk about the fighting amongst Native Americans in the United States, but that's those are partially domesticated. A lot of them relied on agriculture, and the reason that I think that this that anar- that AP is the best possible system that humans can have is because it worked for hundreds of thousands of years. Um, all of the damage began when people began settling down, when people began to. Uh, take land and not share it with the animals around them so they, that they could monocrop. Out of that came cities. Cities are... Um, the definition of a city is is a group of people that have exhausted the, the land... Uh, I'm sorry, it's, it's a large group of people 
um, who have exhausted the resources in the in the place that they are, so they have to import them. And oftentimes, um, people around a city don't want to give up those resources. The people in the city will take them. And this agriculture also created um, it created hierarchies, it created religion, it created government, it created all the layers, the many many layers of control that we that we have today in society. And I, I'm not trying to. I also realize that this is not a noble savage. I'm not. Uh, I'm not romanticizing primitive peoples. Life sometimes is hard, like it is for anybody. But I think, in in terms of just looking at the earth and saying, what is the most sustainable thing that humans can do? That is going back to a primitive way of life, to Stone Age living. And also, as far as I'm concerned, that is the true resource-based economy. Um, because it's, it's, nature is a dictator, as I think Jock and Peter Joseph both said. And the best way that humans can live in nature is to follow its laws. And it's, I mean, building cities and uh, some, other, uh, some other ideas that I've read about the Venus Project, such as colonizing the oceans and things like that, is not, that's not natural. It's just, it, it can't be sustainable and it doesn't respect all the rest of the creatures on the Earth. What gives you the or what brings you to the conclusion that it doesn't respect all the creatures on the earth? Because well, if 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 aliens came from space and colonized through through our habitat, how that's not respectful. It's dominating. It, it's it basically what gives us the right to do that. Uh, well, we're not aliens from space. We're a species indigenous to this planet, like everything else that lives here. I know, but it it's. It's a it's a domination mindset. Why would humans do something? Why would humans build through a forest to build a city? Why would humans um, dam up rivers? It's it's all for the the bottom line is that it's all for hu- it's it's for uh, it makes things advantageous for people. Well, yeah, but that's a constant in nature. The difference is is that it uh, most nature natural creatures, you know, don't expand by any means in the irrational and stupid ways that most capitalists do, but you know, ants dig in the earth and make their lives that way. Termites inhabit, you know, usually inhabit trees and living creatures. Uh, you know, everything ends up making something in the earth that it lives in. Um, I think what is most important is making sure, you know, as the Native Americans would say, you know, take only what you need and, you know, and when you're finished, you know, leave it the way that you found it is basically how you, you know, when you're interact, interacting in the, the natural world. Um, I would say that uh, as far as, as a right, um, I think that we still, as a species, just like all the other species on this planet, do have, you know, the right to create our own dwelling so that we can live here. Um, that's where I think, you know, I definitely think that the current paradigm of the way people do that is not in any way respective of nature, but uh, Jacques was very clear that, you know, we have to preserve nature because it, we are all part of a system that literally is linked. You know, if we destroy the environment, we destroy ourselves. Well, addressing what you said, take only what you need. I mean, we we don't need cities. We don't need running water. We don't need electricity. We don't need any of the things that we have today in modern life. Uh, people survive for hundreds of thousands of years without them. I mean, imagine that, drinking out of a river instead of having running water or 
setting up living in a cave or something, setting up a temporary shelter instead of having a 6,000-square-foot house. And obviously the Venus Project doesn't advocate that. But living in in the or, or living on a piece of land and sharing it with all other animals instead of keeping it out by building dwellings. Um, and I mean the the dwellings that we're talking about again. What what constitutes something a dwelling in which it, that, that a person would need? Um, do we need to have air conditioning? Do we need to have heat? Do we need to have TVs? Do we need to have multi rooms? I mean it's it. For every square inch of uh, space that someone's dwelling takes up, it pushes other animals out that could use that land. And I mean, ants, ants. There's there are probably trillions of ants, and we don't even really notice them because they're living sustainably within their environment. Okay, but I guess um, my question would be to you is that where exactly is the line drawn? Because even in Paleolithic times, people uh, built dwellings for themselves. Um, you go a little further into the, you know, some of the more primitive cultures, the Aztecs and such built cities. Um, and I don't think that that in of itself is going to be a problem. I guess my, my question is, is that it seems to me that um, in looking at your point of view on the matter, you know, how primitive is primitive enough in from your point of view? I don't really have the answer to that question. Some people... Like I said, John Zerzan advocates getting rid of time and language. Um, I, I'm not sure how get rid well of that language get rid of yeah get rid of language because as I said before, I mean describe racism, I mean without words describe religion without words. Um, he also purports that we replace actual things with words, like instead of uh, a, a buffalo, you know we named a buffalo instead of actually looking at it in a, in, in and experiencing it in that way. I mean, that's a little abstract, but I'm, I'm not sure I would go that far. But what it really needs to be determined what people need. People need food. People need some shelter. People need, uh, obviously, companionship. It's I guess Maslow's hierarchy is a good guide. But, and this is purely anecdotal, a friend of mine went to Costa Rica and lived there for a long time it noticed that there was an abundance of edible plants, fruit, and, and, and just right for the taking. And it, the climate down there is very warm. And why, basically, it, it brings to the point, if, do humans need to be living in Michigan or Massachusetts or whatever where it gets ex- extremely cold? Do humans need to be living here? I think the more, the more intelligent thing to do would be to live in a warmer climate where food grows year-round and people don't have to worry about uh, farming or, or whatever, you know? Well, um, I guess the I don't know that personally that it would be practical to suggest that everybody living on this planet can just move to places where the uh, plants and all that grow naturally without any assistance from mankind. Um, I presume that that also means that you're against hunting, you know, um, for animals, for food as well. No, no. Um, hunting is if someone eats, if someone hunts an animal and eats it, that's I mean that's that's survival. Uh, humans biologically are omnivores, so a good diet is meat and fruits and vegetables and nuts. But the difference is, is again, you you just you hunt what you need, and your responsibility. Derek Jensen said this: your responsibility if you kill and eat an animal is to protect that animal's habitat. 
so as to ensure that this, that species lives on. And I, I think that's a good guide. I, I mean, you, you wouldn't overfish or pollute a river because a, a, your life depends on it, and B, there's that unspoken contract that, okay, I'm taking fish from this river. I have to protect the other fish to make sure that the the species can continue. Well, we certainly agree on that. I don't I don't see that that's in any way contradictory. Okay, but I mean, looking at it, I mean, it's unfortunate, but there's simply, at this point, there are just too many people on the planet. The reason that there are so many people is because of the over-exploitation of fossil fuels. And it's, an, it's a cold fact of reality, I guess, that at some point the population is going to have to stop growing. Um, I know it's impractical for people all to live in tropical climates, but I'm just saying that would be one scenario where people would be really living sustainably with nature and not trying to control the land that, that they're on. Okay. Um, well, I guess uh, in looking on it, um, it reminds me a lot actually of things that come up frequently when I'm discussing things with different anarchists. Um, but um, the transition plan that people always demand of any system, specifically, we get that quite a bit, you know, from particularly from anarcho-capitalists. They want to know how we transition. When I ask them the same questions, they don't generally have very many answers. And I think that the reason why is because of the fact that they're not generally willing to admit that uh, moving from a corporatist statist state to an anarcho-capitalist system is not possible overnight, and the transition itself would probably be a very bloody and dark affair. Um, you pointed out that you feel that there are too many people on the planet, and I don't think by any means you advocate genocide or massive killing of people, but switching from no from technology to absolutely no technology, how do you make that transition without um, causing massive starvation? Well, no, I, I don't advocate massive genocide. Um, the thing is, is that people right now, I mean, at this moment, could choose, voluntarily choose to live sustainably with the planet. We could have a soft landing, just like if people wanted, they could choose the resource-based economy and stop all the destruction and pollution in the world. People could choose that, but they, the longer this horrible, uh, incredibly monstrous society that we're living in today goes on, the more, the bloodier it's going to be, the more, uh, the more bodies, uh, the, the bigger the body count. And, and that, that I, I don't like that, but that is unfortunate that, that that's going to happen. As people begin, as people rely more and more on uh, an increasingly dwindling supply of fossil fuels and they overshoot the land and they basically crap in their own mouths, which is what humans are doing, the bodies are going to pile up the longer we wait. The transition is there's no one act. I mean, the only thing that could possibly bring humans back into the Stone Age is either an electromagnetic pulse or nuclear war. And I, no one wants either of those things. That would cause catastrophic mega-death. Not to mention that if you had nuclear war, you certainly couldn't exist in an anarcho-primitivist way after that because the entire environment would be ruined. Yeah. So, I mean, the the transition is a million... It's millions of acts by millions of people. It's uh, starting local gardens. It's teaching people how to collect rainwater. It's um, it's educating people on what's going on. It's, it's 
it's it's living a simple life, you know, not over-consuming. It's teaching people about the hardships that children may go through. Like me personally, and again, this is just purely anecdotal, I'm choosing not to have children because I, I can't guarantee that for the next 80 years this planet will be healthy and ready to accept them. It, it's It just doesn't seem fair to them. And while I'm not saying that other people have to do that, I think if if some people were educated in how just how bad things are, uh, I think they might actually choose to not have children as a merciful act, um, and that would that would help in reducing the population. Um, I mean, in, I've I've read numbers anywhere from 100 million to 500 million people, and that's the actual carrying capacity of the Earth. How true that is, I'm not sure. These are all theories and estimates, but. It's a far cry from 7 billion. So basically what I'm saying is people can either voluntarily decide to scale back their consumerism and consumption. They can decide that they want to live, that they want to live local and, and participate in their local communities. And they can, rele- they can um, lessen their dependence on fossil fuels and technology or nature is going to do it for them. And if nature does it for them, it's going to be really, really bad. Well, the funny thing is is that I agree with you on a lot of what you just said. I don't think that um, putting fossil fuels and technology necessarily in the same sentence, at least not in my point of view, is, is fair because um, the, the internal combustion engine has been obsolete for millennia. It's the – not millennia, for hundreds of years. It's, but it is essentially the um, – uh, the, the capitalist system that prevents the kinds of technology that would actually be far better, uh, far friendlier to the earth, uh, renewable, sustainable, um, because sustainable and renewable, you know, like giving somebody the ability to just create their own energy is by no means profitable. You want them forever paying you, you know, that that's profitable. Um, fossil fuels, uh, I think you'd be hard pressed to find any scientist who wasn't already on the payroll of you know of the fossil fuel industry worth his salt who's ever going to say to you that uh, fossil fuels are the way to go um i think the only purpose that fossil fuels could even have would be to um get rid of themselves essentially build the infrastructure that renders them completely obsolete and then just never use them ever again um i think that uh overall um you know we definitely agree on the issue of uh what's going to happen to the planet. And I've told anarcho-capitalists this before because they don't tend to want to talk about it, but the reality is is that um, there is only so much we can do to this planet for it to still be inhabitable. And whenever they hear us talk about things like sharing or working together, you know, since they've been brainwashed by their goddess Ayn Rand to think of any group of people ever working together as evil collectivists, um, you know, they immediately start casting you in the same light as Lenin or Stalin or, you know, whatever, when the reality is is that nobody, at least from the Zeitgeist movement, is going to show up at your door and try to take your uh, stuff and try to force you to live uh, a life that is sustainable. The, the world will do a very good job of that because if you render the planet in, uninhabitable, it doesn't matter one bit what the market says. You're dead. You know, um, and they generally will, no, 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 you see, the market will, will make uh, the things that are scarce more expensive, and then, then therefore people will buy them less, and then they'll start using these other things. And I'm like, 
No, all the market will do is pursue the most profitable end at every turn, irrespective of the damage to the environment as much as it can possibly get away with. You know, yeah, I um, I actually I I actually disagree on the the capitalist system. And in, in one thing that you said, I think the capitalist system is completely consumer driven. I don't think companies are holding back the electric car or um, geothermal energy because they want profits. I think they're holding it back because consumers are not demanding it. See, you and I know about this stuff. This information is readily available to anyone who wants to look for it, but it, for some reason, people are remaining willfully ignorant. They don't want to know. I guess because they're really enjoying their new iPhones or whatever, but as I said, humans could choose today to make this change, and they're not. And I mean, we, we would choose it, and that's why I'm saying it just becomes a matter of personal responsibility. People like to demonize corporations, and I agree. They're uh, and Corporations is actually a status term, so let's just say businesses. People like to to demonize businesses, but if, if, if consumers wanted change, they would change things. I mean, social, order ha social movements happened long before the Internet was available on far less means. So what is stopping the proletariat from just saying, I don't want fossil fuels, I don't want internal combustion engines, I want the 100-year light bulb? Um, I think that, well, I don't believe for a moment that the consumers are actually, it's not just about willful ignorance. In many cases, there's a lot of propaganda put out. It's very structured. It's very on, very on purpose, essentially the dark side of social engineering. Um, that's what created our consumerist society. You know, the work of Edward Bernays you know, was essentially approached by the rich elite and said, how can you help us engineer society so that people believe that their consumption of goods is what makes them free. And essentially, the, the first sociologist, the first public relations expert, taught them how to do exactly that. Um, and a great deal of information about alternative energy is, is just not really shared. And I don't think that's accidental. I think that's the corporations watching their butts. Um, and it's largely because uh, you know they know that if people were to figure out the alternatives, you know, that they would have a competition that, that they don't want to deal with. Um, it's starting to, you know, their, their hold on things is starting to, is st definitely starting to, to fail. But um, when you take into account the actions of corporations like Texaco, for example, when uh, a company had built a battery that would have made the first electric car that was mass produced able to go 500 miles on a single charge, um, Texaco's reaction to that was to buy that company and shut down the program. You know, to once again hold back the electric car program because the biggest uh, weakness of the original EV1 electric car was that it only had like a 200-mile range. Um, and you know, another example would be you know the way that the uh, Ford, uh, like Ford and other car companies, bought out the trolley system because they wanted people to buy cars and not have as good access to public transportation, um, which was obviously more efficient. Um, and that's just basically the profit motive at work, you know, especially when you learn about advertising and the immense power that advertising has over the, over the human psyche, um, particularly collectively, you know, just groups of people. Um, I, I think that they did an excellent job of making consumers uh, unaware of the alternatives and, and even to the point glorifying or in some way, uh, 
making the uh, the fossil fuel cars and stuff kind of an icon that people uh, look for. I guess that would be you know a difference of opinion or whatever for the information that you and I have that's different. But I, I don't think by you know it's an accident at all that more people don't know about electric cars. I don't think it's an accident that the infrastructure for allowing people to recharge them is so limited, although it is slowly increasing now. Well, I I mean, I agree with you to an extent, but people, at some point, we have to bring personal responsibility in. The consumers could, the consumers could demand this. And the, I mean, there's billions of us to how many, however many of them. Um, and I, my theory on this is people just don't want to know because it threatens their way of life. I think most people just want to come home and watch football and sit on the couch and get fat because once they had this information, they would have to do something about it. I mean, you and I and millions of other people have this information. I know all about propaganda and advertising, Edward Bernays, and I, I know that I, I've seen the documentaries on, the, you know, what what was it, What Killed the Electric Car? Who Killed the Electric Car, yeah. Yeah, which is great. I recommend everybody watch that. But consumers, consumers drive the market. If they wanted change, they would have it. And I think there may be a we're, we're kind of getting into conspiracy territory now there may be a um a collective amongst the corporations to hide these things from consumers but the information is still there if people wanted it they would get it i think that um that's actually an argument that is given frequently by market capitalists um i on the other hand feel that uh, yeah, there's a degree of personal responsibility, but I hear that same personal responsibility mantra given by people who knowingly, voluntarily brainwash our children to be consumers and then say it's the parents' responsibility to deal with it when their children become, you know, basically brainwashed mind slaves to the consumer culture. Um, there's it, Basically, they can absolve themselves of it, uh, you know, of any remorse or responsibility for it because even though I'm using you know, brainwashing and propaganda tactics and, you know, putting devices on children's heads to watch their brainwaves and responses to certain sounds and colors and textures so that I can make my product more interesting them. You know, I'm not in any way responsible for what I'm doing. It's all your fault for buying the product. I mean, they say the same crap. The cigarette companies said it when they designed their product to literally be addictive. It's personal responsibility. You know, you decided to put the addictive substance in your mouth. Now we shouldn't in any way be responsible um, and while I do agree that people should certainly be aware and learn to protect themselves, because some people certainly don't have their best interests at heart, especially if profits are on the you know are are on the chopping block, I also think that something needs to be said of anybody who would literally you know do market research using psychologists and sociologists intent on getting people to use a product that will hurt them. I, I can't for a moment at that point only place blame. I've got to place, at least for me, at least 70 to 80% blame on the person who's knowing manipulating, knowingly manipulating people into destructive ends. Yeah, I mean, you make good points. It's just that I can't get past the fact that me, you, and millions of other people have this information. It's, it's there. I just think people don't want it. But um, in terms of actually, I, I want to, this segues into a, a, a position I have on primitivism is that one one way that, that people just dismiss anarcho-primitivism, I mean, if you type anarcho-primitivism into YouTube, most of the videos that come up are mine, which is kind of unfortunate. Um, but the reason that people are able to, to just dismiss this is because it 
is um, the arguments that, that people put forward on it are just stereotypes or they're wrong. Um, the, uh, the Ayn Rand school of thought. These people were savages with brutal short lives and that's that. Why would we ever want to go to that? Um, I actually collected a bunch of clips of Stefan Molyneux. He said one today. I would never want to go back to, uh, say, the times of the bubonic plague because, well, who wants the bubonic plague? And I want, I want modern medical treatment. But breaking that down, let's think about it. That was in uh, a, a much freer market than we have today. Um, it was uh, largely spread by uh, com- rats on commerce ships. There's capitalism for you. And it, the rats ran into cities uh, with these disgusting hovels um, that, that poor people were forced to live in in order to support their feudal lords. That's why it spread so rapidly. That's not primitive life. If, if anything, I mean, I, can't, I believe that was... Um, uh, 1314 or 1300 to 1349, that the, the market was far freer than it is today. Um, so most of the most of the arguments that I hear to dismiss anarcho-primitivism are just all you know. Like I said, they're savages, and why would we ever want to do that? When in reality, it was uh, the quality of life was much higher than most people can realize. For example, there are 60 hunter-gatherer tribes in the world today. Today in 2013, why is that? Why haven't they embraced technology? I don't think it's because they're stupid. I think it's because they're quite happy with their way of life. Well, you you know, once again, and this is one of the reasons why I've said that quite ironically in my studies of various anarchist schools that have things in common with Venus Project, you know, methodology, uh, ironically, anarcho-primitivism is definitely one of the closest in regards to things like that because one of the things we definitely feel needs to change is people's relationship with with material objects and what they think is important and what is not. And in fact, we refer to ancient societies frequently when we're discussing with capitalists about why you really don't need as much junk as you think you do. Um, I frequently tell people to go you know, and check out the minimalist movement. I don't know if you're familiar with them or not, but mm-hmm. I interviewed a really nice lady named Tammy Strobel, and I also did a show called Money, Why Money and the Things You Buy With It Doesn't Make You Happy. Um, I definitely think that that's a valid perspective, and it's one of the reasons why in the Venus Project, you know, mass production of items particularly novelties, would just not be something we'd be pursuing. Um, you can make access abundance, you know, like the example that Peter Joseph gave in one of his orientations was golf clubs. A lot of people own golf clubs. They sit in their garage like probably 70% of the time that the person owns them. You know, why would you ever want to own golf clubs if you could just go to the course and pick out some golf clubs and then use them and then be done. You know, he did say, if you want to keep the golf clubs, because of course the anarcho-capitalists are always like, oh my God, what if I want to own my own golf clubs? Okay, fine. If you want to own your own golf clubs, cool. You know, but now they're your responsibility, and you got to take care of them in such a way that isn't going to destroy our environment um, if you want to be part of our society. So, I mean, I definitely, I think that, uh, especially in regards to the relationships between people and relationships between people and their stuff, we have a lot more in common than you might think. Um, I think that uh, the, the other thing is also about what is the purpose of technology um, I think that it's really important for anarcho-primitivists to understand the vast difference between what technology means to a capitalist 
and what technology means to a resource-based economy advocate. Um, because technology should only be used in a way, you know, that furthers our species, you know, and our ability to take care of ourselves and the planet we live on. Um, that's not a philosophy that's in any way kosher with the way capitalists look at technology. And in fact, capitalists generally look at technology and then they see dollar signs. You know, and the reason why you know, they don't like alternative energy is because the dollar signs that they see are smaller if people have their own solar arrays than they are, than the, you know, than they are uh, the dollar signs that they see if they set up a coal plant or a natural gas plant you know, somewhere in the area and are regularly billing people for something that they can, you know, artificially control the scarcity of whenever they want to make more profit. Um, and so I guess that's why I would say, you know, once again, to differentiate and understand the major differences in those two philosophies, and we certainly agree that those things are a problem. I think that what where we may disagree is that I think that um, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, at least from your perspective. I think anarcho-primitivists feel that technology itself leads people in that direction, um, that inevitably one thing will come out of the other. And that's, it's a funny thing that actually that frequently comes up. Like, for example, Zeitgeist Movement members, um, anarcho-communists, anarcho-socialists, and syndicalists all say that the market has a tendency to create the state. You tell that to an ANCAP and they lose their, they lose their minds. They can't handle that. You know, they say, no, no, that the, you know, the state is the problem only, you know, and I think that what I would get out of this is that it would seem to me that some anarcho-primitivists feel that the use of technology itself inevitably builds the market and the state. Would, would that be an accurate assessment of their point of view? Um, not me, actually. That, that's, that's kind of where I differentiate um, with, with my peers. A lot of people will criticize today's society and call it capitalism, and it's not. It's, it's fascism but my my take on technology and you you said use technology to take care of the planet the planet can take care of itself um, we don't need to uh, we don't need to intervene in these things we don't need to intervene in nature the only thing that technology benefits is humans um, and, and it technology helps people dominate the planet uh, it helps people control especially science which I also have a bone to pick with um, Technology, most technology, will it just helps people dominate the planet. It, it keeps uh, a city, will keep animals, the animals that previously lived there, out of the city. Um, agriculture, even hydroponics, it all requires intensive resources. Or you brought up solar panels, and just the amount of copper wiring for these, uh, it, it requires intensive natural resources. And in order to get that, People have to go out and dominate nature and displace animals and, and blow the tops off mountains to get these things. I mean, it, it's not like they're just sitting there waiting for us to use. I, this, this is one of the, the biggest uh, issues I have with the resource-based economy is that it, it, it continues the domination of the planet, not to the same extent of today, but we, we don't have the right to do these things. Uh, we, 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 don't, we can't just, just say, well, we want cities now we want uh, better technology we want more we want uh, renewable energy all these things have to be built and all these things require intense natural resources which is going to continue to dominate nature and and i ask anybody who advocates that sort of thing look at it through the eyes of of the creatures that are being displaced or destroyed in order to get these things 
Um, well, I guess that comes back to that same point that I asked you back then was to what extent is it not dominating nature? Am I dominating nature if I decide to move a bear out of his cave because I want to live there instead? You know, is the bear deciding that it's dominating nature when it comes back to the cave and kills you because it wants its cave back? You know, um, are bees dominating nature when they, you know, harvest, you know, pollen to make honey? You know, that that's, I guess, the question is that it, it seems to me like uh, I, I feel, you know, and the, um, the Native Americans talked about this too, we should consider ourselves as part of the world, not the masters of the world. And I agree with that. Jacques Fresco agrees with that. But there, there is a, a question of where do we draw the line? Because some of what you're saying doesn't—it doesn't sound like you're even really leaving room for, for mankind at all. Like, and under what circumstances do they get to live? Do they only get to live in dwellings that do not in any way involve tilling the soil, uh, you know, cutting down trees? Are they only allowed to live in dwellings, uh, you know, in that circumstance? You know, are are they not allowed to, for example, pursue medical technology that's necessary to save lives? Um, you know, where is the cutoff point? Well, if your example about a bear, I mean, that's nature. Animals kick each other out of habitats all the time. This, it's going to happen. But I mean, even, and I'm not saying you were, but because you segued into it, to compare that to anything like the Venus Project, I mean, we're talking apples and oranges. Um, building cities with with all the materials that, uh, that that are needed for those cities is, is light years away from kicking a bear out of his cave to live in it. Humans need to humans should live with with the uh, the least disturbing possible to the earth. Um, medical technology. I mean, most of the diseases that are around today, like cancer, for example, that's a civilization disease. Um, Crohn's disease. Um, muscular dystrophy, a lot of a lot of diseases can be linked to I mean, just open your uh open the under the, the cabinet under your sink in your kitchen. You're gonna see all these poisons that people have created to uh that for which there is no cure. Um these these things cause cancer. They, and and how much medical technology is needed. I mean if we got rid of all this this uh, the these things that are polluting the rivers try I mean try to think of it outside of the frame of um of, of of the society today, we we wouldn't need a huge amount of. I mean, how much how much medical how much um, medical technology, for example, is dedicated to treating obesity related diseases? That's a that's a civilization disease. All the reason, those. well, no, and I and I don't I, I don't disagree with you on that. Aside from saying the fact that the civilization diseases that you're talking about are generally all created through profit motivated products. Every time you look at something that's been linked to cancer or some of these other major diseases, there's almost always somebody getting a dollar sign somewhere else. Not to mention the squelching of technologies um, for cancer research. You know, there's supposedly a cancer cure in Canada. Nobody wants to develop it because treating it is better than you know, is, is better as far as profit than curing it. You know, um, that's why I'm saying once again, you're talking about effects of things that, as far as the technology approach that we suggest, wouldn't even exist in the first place. I don't see any cancer being caused by technology in a Venus Project society. Well, um, you, you would need to, for example, you would need to smelt metals to make the things that uh, that that are involved, and even for solar panels, you need to smelt the metals. And what happens with the uh, with the particles? They go up in the air and they cause carcinogens. I mean civilization and I'll just define civilization it's the uh 
it's it's basically humans living in cities. Um, civilization has caused these problems, and a lot of the response is, well, how do we fix these? How do we fix these problems? How do we cure cancer without getting rid of the cause of cancer? For example, you know. Okay, well, obviously we would get to the bottom of what the real cause of cancer is, and we wouldn't produce anything that's going to cause cancer. It's it literally is built into the concept of the system that I'm talking about. But, um, I mean, furthermore to say that, um, you know, the cities that we're talking about, you know, every, as I said before, every organism on this planet in some way or another constructs a dwelling. Um, the question is, it's like, what impact does that dwelling have on the environment around it? And occasionally there are even creatures on this planet that can do damage to the environment if, you know, if, we don't look very closely at where they're at. Now, most times they're moved from place to place by accident, but, um, you know, it, one species, you know, for example, there's a there's a beetle that lives in North America that you have to be careful about where you take wood because it might actually start infecting the local trees. Um, it, inevitably, though, as far as back to the, the point of the cities, um, I don't think that cities that are designed to be economically, economically, ecologically sound are a blight on the earth. I, I don't. I, we, we will just, I guess, have to have a philosophical disagreement at that point. But um, that brings me back, though, to kind of the unanswered question. Is still, I mean, I mean, mind you, you said you don't have an answer for the question. In that, you know, if there's no understanding of what the actual cutoff point is going to be, then we're inevitably going to have a problem where different societies have different cutoff points. You know, is the Amish society is that enough? Um, you know, do you have to live like the indigenous peoples that are still living in South America? Is that enough? You know, uh, there are so many different examples of people who have chosen to um, reject technology. Um, another point I would want to bring up is that uh, when I say, you know, protecting the environment, you say that we don't need to intervene in the environment. One of the, the points that Fresco brings up about the application of technology in a resource-based economy is one of the things that science can do is it can undo the damage that was done by uh, industrialization, as you put it, that was profit-motivated. Um, through science, we can learn the best ways possible to cure the environment of the diseases that we created. Um, and once again, I say we, taking responsibility for mankind as a whole. Um, so that I think would be um, one of the points, you know, we may just have to concede to the point that we're not going to agree on whether or not uh, a city built in the Venus project is a destructive thing that, you know, shouldn't be done or not. I think that for me, the answer that I, you know, that I basically got the answer for when I talked to Fresco, um, was that as long as we built cities, you know, um, where our technology is very carefully designed not to harm other creatures, not to harm the environment, and then give the majority of the Earth back to nature itself, um, then that, to me, anyway, that feels fair. You know, I guess that's a question of, you know, we're always going to end up in a situation where people have their own arbitrary senses of values. Um, and one of the things that has often been a challenge... Uh, frequently when I'm discussing things with different anarchists, which is one of the reasons that I ended up uh, holding off for a little while on my conversation with Michael Shanklin, is that their points of view are often inconsistent individually, which isn't, I'm not saying you're being intentionally inconsistent, but um, the, like, for example, 
you know, you can't have a conversation with anarcho-capitalists and say, well, Ayn Rand said this, because then they'll say, oh, well, I don't, I don't follow this. I follow this, this, and this. Um, and then when you try to get a hold on what anarcho-capitalists think, you basically can't because every single one of them is different. Um, and as a result, uh, they basically can, it's like playing soccer where somebody's passing the ball between two different people to make sure that you can never get your hands on it. Um, and it makes it very hard, very elusive to debate with them at that point. Um, because at that point, they don't even have, and they're intentionally being evasive in the way that they project what they're thinking. Um, the difference is, is with you, I honestly, sincerely believe that perhaps you just haven't really thought about it very much. And it takes a long time to think about things like whole society systems. Whereas with them, I think they know full well that there are big unanswered questions in their position. And that's why it makes them very nervous when I ask them questions about that kind of stuff. You didn't respond nervous and you weren't evasive. Um, and I guess, so also, you know, if you feel, for example, since, you know, you're kind of exposing my listeners to the anarcho-primitivist system for the first time, um, and I've encouraged Michael Shanklin to do the same, if there are perhaps beliefs of other anarcho-primitivists that might be relevant to our conversation that you may want to bring up, even if you don't personally agree with them, feel free to source them. Okay. Um, a few things. You said that uh, humans can create science to heal the environment. I, I disagree with that. I think the answer to healing the environment is leaving it alone. If people abandoned technology right now and abandoned and abandoned all the things that were damaging the environment the environment would heal itself the the earth is a self-correcting system it doesn't need us um and i, I honestly i can't i i don't know enough about anthropology to give you an acceptable i think stone age living is the the only answer i can give you it's basic tools it's small bands of people in uh, nomadic tribes it's not uh, enslaving the earth with agriculture and domestication of animals. It's small groups of people living sustainably with the planet. And obviously, you know, killing a, 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 a going back to your example earlier, kicking a bear out of its cave to live there, I mean, that, that would just be part of nature. It's far, that's far removed from any other uh, building a city through a forest or something like that. And there, there can be different degrees of primitivists. Um, for example, as I said earlier, John Zerzan advocates uh, getting rid of time and getting rid of language. And now, if people want to do that, that's fine. I don't agree in this. I don't. I don't uh, believe in this ridiculous non-aggression principle that capitalists put forward. It the thing I can blow it wi uh, wide open with uh, inconsistencies. But if people don't want to use language, they don't have to. If people don't want to use time, they don't have to. I think. It, it, it's just it's subjective. How much can people take from the earth without damaging, uh, w without, uh, uh, put it this way, if, if you, not you, but if anyone wanted to live in one spot for 500 years, they would treat it a lot differently than it's going to be treated today. Um, or even or possibly in a, in a resource-based economy. Or 5,000 years or 500,000 years. I mean, that I think that would be a good guide to any primitivist. If you p live like you plan on living here for for another half a million years, and I think that that would dictate um, the I think that would dictate how people live. And one last thing I wanted to say is um, cities are they're just I, I don't know I don't know if if maybe you don't know this, but I mean cities are incredibly damaging even today. 
cities are damaging to animals, to a lot of animals, especially birds. Um, I've seen the, the circular city designs, and there's tons of windows. And the, the, I, I, I'm trying to find figures, but it's millions of birds killed every year by windows in cities. They just fly and smash into them. And also lights. Um, cities are full of lights. And I, th- I think cities of a resource-based economy, unless I'm wrong, would also be. That, that confuses birds and it, it screws up their mating patterns. It's, it, it just, it, and this is just one example. So that, that's why I'm saying I don't think this, this could possibly be called sustainable. I think it's a, it, it's a human-favored system that maybe unintentionally um, harms nature. Well, um, as far as I'd have to look at whatever statistics, I've lived in houses with windows my entire life, and I can honestly say not a single bird has ever been killed by any windows in my house. Um, while I'm sure that it's, you know, it ends up happening, particularly when you see some of these extremely high-rise buildings and such um, that people build that also would not be something you'd see in the circular cities that Fresco talks about, um, you're going to run into situations like that. But I think at the same time, you know, this is funny because this reminds me of like an anarcho-capitalist will say, well, no, that's the state's fault. In this instance, I'm talking about things that are obviously market capitalism's fault. Um, you know, and that's essentially you know, a perfect example of that. People build the things that they do right now because of cost, cost efficiency and they don't really care about the environment. And I can't, for any, by any stretch of the imagination, take responsibility as far as the, the uses of technology from people who are motivated by a bottom line and not by living in a way that's sustainable. Um, th- those things can't be attributed to a Venus Project society. Um, if, I'm sorry, if, you know, if, you know, obviously, once again, we may just have to agree to disagree on that, but uh, I do not see any technology coming out of um, a... a paradigm that is literally motivated to live in a much as much harmony with the planet and with each other as far as the people as a resource-based economy model i don't see that ever producing um the same things that you're talking about when you refer to as a city if there's a problem with birds and birds surviving because of windows then we'll investigate it scientifically treat it and deal with it because we consider that something important the reason why capitalists don't invest a lot of money in that is because it's not very important to most capitalists. What's important to them is their bottom line. Well, I mean, you say you can, that, that you'd consider it something important, but that, that kind of sounds like when the capitalists say, well, we just rely on the non-aggression principle. I mean, maybe people would say, well, oh, you know, they're just birds, kind of like today. Maybe they're not enough of a problem to investigate. I mean, that's just one example. Um, in the um, Two things that I saw in the in the Zeit and the uh, Venus Project FAQ was uh, uh, damming the Bering Strait and putting a, um, uh, a giant turbines in to control the Gulf Stream, which would have unbelievably harmful effects on marine life. And this this type of thinking, I think, comes out of what's going on today, where it is acceptable to just manipulate nature and and. You know, it, it's the old saying: you got to crack a few eggs to make an omelet. I mean, but but that's a lot of eggs, you know. And I, and I just don't think it's necessary to to do things like that in order to live uh, a, a life on this planet. Well, um, I'm not familiar. I know what you're talking about in regards to the Bering Strait. I haven't looked at the design very closely. From what I remember, though, a lot of it is tunneling 
Um, like literally creating something that's not like a normal turbine that you would see that wouldn't do any damage to the marine life. Um, Jacques Fresco talks about studies, for example, um, ways to create cities under the sea that don't um, harm the environment and allow humans to observe aquatic life in their natural habitat. Um, I guess the, the main difference would be when you say, for example, things like the non-aggression principle, the reason that I have an issue with the way the NCAPs think that they can rely on the non-aggression principle is that their system itself does not encourage that, that, that thinking. You know, as like, you know, when I gave you the example of the Ayn Rand stuff you talked about earlier, um, you know, it's basically um, throughout history, whenever people are put in a position where they think that they need to fight over resources to survive, rather than being in a paradigm where people recognize that resources should be cultivated carefully so that everybody can survive, you're inevitably going to have problems. You're inevitably going to have people who are going to think, well, you know, I could just develop alternative energy, but geez, you know, using this huge armed force that I have to steal the oil from the Arabs would be so much more profitable. You know, as soon as you have that paradigm in place, I see the non-aggression principle falling apart. I don't see the not, um, I don't see, however, the Venus Project's view on protecting the environment falling apart because it's inherent in our philosophy and our design studies, and our motive is our own survival. This is one of the things that people don't tend to recognize about sustainable living is it's not, you know, because they always think of things in the matter of dot, you know, dollar signs is that it's not just about dollar signs. It's about being able to re keep the planet inhabitable, just like we discussed earlier. Um, so I have confidence, you know, after spending the time that I have studying the Venus Project, which is a long time, that the environment will be protected as a, as a major motivating factor behind everything we do and I wouldn't support it otherwise because I was an environmentalist before I ever came to the Venus Project yeah I, I mean but your your uh, your point about underwater cities I mean the, the underwater think about I don't know how much you know about marine biology but stuff lives or swims past or I mean you could have um, little you could have little creatures scuttling about on the bottom of the sea or you could have fish that swim in that area that are then disturbed by that by that city i mean this this stuff is just it's just not i mean i think i feel like we're going in circles at this point but this to me this stuff is just not necessary it's not necessary for the survival of the human race i i mean it's i guess it would be nice to look out the window and see a shark but it's not necessary and it does harm to whatever used to live or swim through or depend on that that ecosystem uh, for its survival. I guess I just don't agree. So, um, I want to make one. I just want to say one one thing about the non-aggression principle. And uh, I obviously we agree on on this, but um, the non-aggression principle. I, I had a conversation with Larkin Rose. I'm not sure if you know who that is. <laughs> yeah, I'm very familiar with him. And uh, I like That's the him. guy who says that you're either an anarcho-capitalist or you support violence. Yeah. <laughs> he's he's a nice he's a nice guy, but his his views are somewhat ridiculous. Weird. Yeah. Um, Go on. <laughs> he told me that because uh, I I immediately pointed this out. It seems like the non-aggression principle only applies to humans, and he actually admitted that it does, which I thought was fantastic. That that level of honesty is great, but that means catastrophe for the rest of the planet. Um, then I asked Stefan Molyneux the same thing. Does this apply to only humans and he said well he kind of dodged the question 
Um, yeah, I, I listened to that on your video. That was that was pretty it, typical, Stefan. There's only there's the non-aggression principle, which applies to humans, and the non-sadistic principle, which applies to animal everything else. Mm. Um, and of course, what that means is it's perfectly acceptable to kill something, but you just can't torture it. You can cut through, a, you can clear cut a forest, burn it down, and destroy all the animals there, as long as you don't torture them. Whatever torture means. I mean, that's such an that's such an ambiguous term. And I just think that's such an incredible cop-out that I've received from from uh, capitalists. And that's one of the reasons that I was driven to primitivism, because until humans are taught from birth that we that they need to respect everything on the planet, they're and, and, and I mean uh, equally, there can be no there can be no peace. There will always be hierarchies. There will always be domination. There um, to to teach a child uh, or to teach somebody, well, don't spank your kid, and then to not say, well, don't uh, you know, don't uh, respect a tree as something more than something that's just in the way of a shopping mall. Um, there can't be peace. It's just such a huge flaw. It's such a huge inconsistency. To, to to consider well we, we're not supposed to harm humans but we can harm everything else. Well, I definitely think that Larkin's position um, of it only applying to humans is an arrogant point of view, and I certainly wouldn't agree with it there. I generally say to people, because like Michael Shanklin, for example, recently asked for advice on how to talk about uh, environmentalism from their perspective. And what I said to him was, my advice to you would be to consider discussing applying the non-aggression principle to the environment. Um, if people are not willing to make the leap to think that animals and plants or whatever are worthy of the non-aggression principle, um, I would at least point out to them that, for example, um, if somebody harms the environment, they inevitably will harm other people who live in said environment. Um, that that's it's not a question of if it's a question of when it's like they they frequently come into situations like that which is why like when we get into arguments um um when we get into uh situations in regards to um environmental issues uh for example in Michigan Nestle bought the property rights to an aquifer um and so then they just start draining all the water out of it and selling it to everybody. You know, um, and, but hey, they, they bought it. It's theirs, right? Um, yeah, I, I actually, one of the things that prompted me to make a, a video in response to a Stefan Molyneux, I hate to keep bringing him up, but I've had the most exposure to him, um, is in a sustainability video, he, sustainable capitalism is a laughable concept. Um, he said that the solution to that is to sell the plot of land to the person who can pay the highest price because that person now has the, the best vested interest in taking care of it because they have such a large investment. And I just and then he went on to say about, okay, we'll just cut the trees down and whatever. I mean, that, that's such a, it's such a trivial and, and disrespectful dismissal of what might be living there. And now I, I just – I think you, you just said that um, – you know, obviously harming the environment is not desirable to anybody, but but still, I mean, don't you think that that building cities and building underwater cities and uh, bear and and damming the Bering Strait and building turbines, I mean, that's all harming the environment. So, I mean, that that's one of the that's one of the inconsistencies that I see in the in the resource-based economy. I I can't get past that. What is the acceptable level, in your opinion, of harm to the environment? 
Well, I don't think actually that there, um, in anything that Fresco has ever told me in all the times that I've talked to him, that there is going to be any technology proposed that harms the environment, as in none. That's as I was, was explained to me. Even if they talk about, you know, damming or using the energy in the Bering Strait to create energy, you know, that doesn't harm the environment, um, uh, I don't see that ever coming out of it. I would have to talk to Fresco a little bit more on the topic, but overall, um, everything else that he's always, you know, there's always an explanation specifically with every city design that he brings up about the various ways that you avoid environmental destruction. So, but um, but but I mean, just just to, to take the dam as an example, every single step of that would harm the environment. To get the the materials to build the dam would harm the environment. To transport the materials would harm the environment. To put the materials into place would harm the environment. And dams do huge amounts of damage to marine wildlife. Even if you have tunnels, I mean, fish are going to end up going down and smashing into the dams and getting clogged up and die. I mean, it, it's when if you do anything, I mean, marine, marine, um, uh, marine ecosystems are incredibly fragile, and even a, a little bit of of of, uh, of uh, intrusion by humans can cause a great deal of harm. I don't agree. I think that it could be done without harming the environment. Okay, so, I mean, how can you harvest the materials needed for that dam without harming the environment? Well, it, it comes from nature where, where animals live. That, yes, but um, I think, well, first of all, I think that, that, once again, that comes back to that fundamental, because, like, we haven't been able to establish the bottom of it. You know, like you said, as little impact as possible, okay? So as far as getting resources, are you talking about whether it's getting metals out of the ground or you know, minerals or whatever, or using any of those things, you know, is that harming the environment? It um, is. Okay, you feel that that's harming the environment. Okay, I feel that such things can be done technologically without harming the environment. I don't think that just digging in the earth harms the environment. I think digging in the earth, irrespective of what that will, you know, how that will affect anything else, would. If you just mined a certain mineral in a way, for example, that polluted the aquifer, yeah, that's definitely not a Venus Project um, familiar, you know, way of going about things at all okay so um at the end of the day i feel that it can be done you don't feel that it can um i, I don't have much more on that unfortunately at least not now are are i mean are there this is this is one criticism people bring up about the venus project or where are the algorithms but i mean are, where are the where are the designs for i mean how could you possibly get something out of like a uh, say aluminum out of a mountain without harming the environment do you, I mean, is there somewhere, I, I know I don't expect you to tell me, well, you first do this, and then you, is there a place where you can, uh, where I can go to read this? As far as, like, ways of using technology to not harm the environment? Um, yeah. Fresco talks a lot, about, a lot about that stuff on the, the Venus Project website itself. Um, but he's also, you know, as a, basically his position as an industrial engineer is mostly about planning out the ideas, there are a lot of other people in between that, you know, like mechanical engineers and things like that would also have to be consulted in the creation of any such things. So, um, basically, uh, overall, uh, I can tell you that at least within the philosophy of how all technologies are approached, the environment is, is not an option. You know, it is absolutely critical. That is my understanding of it. But I mean, if something is seen as as critical to human survival in these cities, and it's needed, people are going to take it. I mean, that's that's that is my biggest gripe with cities is that 
it's, it, they're unsustainable by design. They require the importation of resources. And if, if something needs to come into the city and it's critically needed, humans will take it. And I think, and I'm not saying it, it, this is anything about you or maybe it exists, but in, until, until the Venus Project can show me specifics on how you would possibly mine materials uh, out of the earth without harming the surrounding environment, I, I can't, that's, it's just something I can't get on board with. Okay, well, that's why you're an anarcho-primitivist and I'm a Venus Project advocate, but at least I think that we do have a lot of common ground on various things. And I can say that at the end of the day, I don't feel that um, our two societies could not uh, interact peacefully. I feel that they could. Um, and obviously I would stand up you know, to ensure that that happened. Um, now, there are people actually who have been listening who would like to call in and um, converse about this. Would you be interested in hearing some callers? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Um, let me see if I can... I guess I can't add him via Skype. Let me look for my switchboard. Okay. I'm going to go ahead and give him the phone number, and then we will take it from there. I promise if I don't have the answer, I'll I'll get the answer. No, and that's fine. And I hope that I can also call on you for roundtable discussions and things like that when I like to get different perspectives. You know, um, I've had people of different anarchist schools on that are friends of mine, you know, that I consider my colleagues. And I think that's a really important thing is that we need to be able to have conversations like this without taking it personal. And I think you and I have been able to accomplish that. And I think that there needs to be a that needs to be the model for how mankind exchanges information. Um, one second, let me make sure that this is him. Hello, is that Frank? Frank, can't hear you, Frank. Oh, okay, that's for some reason saying that it's still ringing on his end, but I will see if I can get it to. Okay, I, I mean I agree with you on on conversating. I, I mean we agree. The the most important thing we agree is the system right now has to go. And, I mean <laughs> we've already taken the big the the baby steps. Now we just got to figure everything else out. Okay. For some reason, the blog talk call-in line is not working. Let me see if I can just add him via Skype. I apologize as we now hold for technical difficulties. Is there somewhere somebody can type it in? Please stand by. Okay, caller thing disappeared there. I don't know what happened. I've never had a problem with the guest call-in. I'm just going to add him via Skype. Oh, it's the technology, I'm telling you. <laughs> hey, if it wasn't for technology, we couldn't be having this conversation. Yeah. Well. Hey, Frank, welcome back to V-Radio. Hey, Neil. Um, you wanted to talk with Chris? Yeah. What can I do for you? Well, you, you said a few things that, that I noticed and, and pulled out as being less than true. And I don't think that there was any intentional dishonesty on your part. I just think that uh, when we start talking about Paleolithic era, 
we're talking about stuff that we're kind of gleaning from the fragments that are left behind. Okay, uh, I I agree to an extent. I mean, there's no way that people can know exactly what was going on 10,000 years ago. Um, the theories put forward are, are yes, they are based on um, on fragments, and they're based on um, they're, they're, they are theories. However, I think that we could. I mean, if you if you need a modern example, you can look at these 60 or so tribes, that, the hunter gatherer tribes that live on the planet now, and there must be a reason that these these people are still living in a primitive way. I don't think it's because they're stupid. I think it's because their quality of life is good, and and that's how they want to live. Well, I, I often cite them myself in defense of my own arguments, my own suggestions about what we could do moving forward. And I don't I agree with Neil that we don't need to simply dismiss technology altogether to be able to get there. That I believe that is entirely possible to have a gift society, a gift culture, if you will, um or a gift economy, if you will. Um that is entirely possible to have that, which is primitivist, uh, at least in that regard. It's it's dismissing the whole idea of a monetary system and a market system, and it's moving on onward, or maybe even a little bit backwards to some degree, uh, to a different system that has persisted for millennia, for eons. As you've said, and you've got to, if you look at those societies, they're not the cavemen. They're not working with uh, bone and stone. They have real tools. They build real structures. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm actually looking at this. I, I wasn't familiar with that term. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly a workable idea. Um, John Zerzan says he's looking for a future primitive, not to go back to the Stone Age, which I think is a... Uh, is, a, is definitely a workable model because um, most people are not going to tolerate going back to the Stone Age. I'm fully aware of that. I think there there definitely could be a compromise between um, some modern conveniences and 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 primitive living that people could come to. Um, basically, all you really have to do is is say, is, does this do more good than harm? Does does this are we respecting the land off which we were living, or are we living sustainably? Um, and this, that's why the question of, of what level of harm is acceptable is very difficult to answer. So right. I, I and think economy is a good idea. I'm a strong advocate of sustainability. And when we talk about sustainability, one of the things that we must realize is that some harm will occur. The question is, are we going to be causing more harm than can be uh, than can be mitigated by uh, by the natural world, or are we going to be ca- causing so much harm that uh, that it cannot be mitigated? A- and therein lies the crux of sustainability. If the harm that we're causing can be mitigated by natural conditions, then it is n- it, it is within the scope and realm of sustainability. Yeah, I, and I mean this is this is one of the points Neil and I have, have disagreed on is is 
I think that modern technology, such as uh, damming the Bering Strait, would cause a lot of harm. He doesn't, and I mean, we're just going to have to agree to disagree. Well, yeah, and I, I'm probably more inclined to agree with you on that point than with Neil. Sorry, Neil. It's okay. Uh, <laughs> you don't have to say sorry for disagreeing with me. Remember uh, whose show you're on. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I have a uh, or had a show that I did, which, by the way, I'm looking at bringing my show back just to let your listeners know, uh, a couple of which I, I'm sure were uh, mutual listeners whenever I was doing mine. Uh, I'm looking at bringing my show back, but I'm going to do one that's not live, that's pre-recorded and, and a lot more produced so uh, so that I can have video running in the background kind of thing. Um, but anyhow, uh, that that's a future project that I'm working towards, and, and we're looking at uh, probably another month or two at least before I'll be able to start production on that. Uh, meanwhile, back to this conversation. So my point is that you can have sustainability without having to worry about, uh, yeah, you can only use bone and stone and, and you can't kill that animal because, well, that's killing an animal. I mean, if you look at the rest of the animal kingdom, they do the same thing. They kill other animals, but they don't overhunt. And when they do, the environment lets them know, hey, you overhunted. Yeah, I, I agree with that 100%. I mean, if you're going to... If, if you're going to kill an animal, you need to eat it and use whatever part you can, um, which is in stark contrast to today where people just do it for fun. I, I think sport fishing, what a, what a disgusting concept that is. I, I think that's a disgusting concept as well. I think that uh, mounting trophies, uh, especially when you're not taking the meat. Yeah, I um, agree. It is... Uh, is one of the problems. I mean, it's co- very consumerist, and, and I mean that in the darkest, dullest, deepest, just most a- uh, abhorrent aspects of that term. I agree. I agree. Well, I'm glad to see uh, such a constructive conversation once again taking place on V Radio. <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess, uh, Frank, did you want to comment on anything else that we've talked about so far? No, that was uh, that was really basically... The, I mean, it, it's been such a long time in the interim since it, there's been so many things that have been said, and there were so many responses that you came back with that were at least very similar to what I would have said. So uh, I really don't think that I need to delve any further than to say that uh, that... Uh, gift economies is an option that doesn't have to take us all the way back to bone and stone. It allows for technology so long as it is used responsibly. And by that, I mean responsively, responsive to the environment. Do you have a comment for that, Chris? Um, No, as I said before, I think it's a... A gift economy seems like a it seems like a, a reasonable idea. Um, I'm looking. I'm just reading because, as I said, I'm not actually familiar with this. And it says 
something I'm reading says, um, gift exchange is distinguished from other forms of exchange by a number of principles, such as a form of property rights governing the articles exchanged. I don't property rights. Uh, I don't. I don't know if that's anything Frank was talking about, but any time that those two words enter anything, I just throw it out the window. But but the concept of a gift economy or a gift culture. Uh, and if anybody, I'm just looking at Wikipedia, uh, if anybody doesn't know, a gift economy is a model of exchange where valuables are not sold, but rather given without an explicit agreement for immediate or future rewards. That's fine. I mean, that doesn't harm anybody. Right. And, then, and a lot of people kind of mis, uh, misapply or misunderstand the, the term gift economy uh, in that they're, they're expecting, because of this capitalist society in which we live now, they keep expecting a return on investment. You know, I invested so much of my time and, and or materials into creating this thing and then giving it away. And what if I'm giving it away to all these people and none of them are there to give that return, to, to give anything in return? In which case, um, you'd have to... Psychologically speaking, you'd have to think about it in terms of psychology. What the hell did you do to piss off so damn many people that they're not going to give anything back to you after you've given so freely of yourself? Um, and that's that's the way it is in the gift cultures. In the gift cultures, you're frowned upon if you're not giving to society, if you're not giving to uh, the community in some way. Yeah, uh, it, aiding that, them in their. It's it's I I agree with what you're saying. It's totally a uh, it's a it's a it's a it's a matter of values, and um, both Neil and I agree strongly that the values of today need to be discarded. We need a value shift towards a sustainable economy, and right. uh, I, I don't see I don't see a gift economy uh, as anything uh, but good in that. And I agree with you. Usually, somebody today you expect a knife in the back if you. Uh, uh, if you don't give back or, or whatever, but I mean th- this 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 seems like a good idea, and I think if people wanted to do that in a primitivist economy or whatever, that's fine. That's totally fine. Yeah. Um, and, and so, in that, you're also you're living off of the land. You're you're uh, living within the means of the environment, and it's responsive to the environment, and, and that. That's where we need to be moving toward um, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, to use, uh, to borrow a term, because I'm an atheist. Um, But yeah, to borrow the term spiritually, yeah, we need to move in that direction. I agree. I agree, definitely. Uh, That's about all I had to say. Thank you for having me on, Neil. That's no problem. now, I guess, uh, Chris, we've talked a lot about the different things that we disagree on. Um, what would you say, as far as what, at least what you've been exposed to so far, um, is uh, um, what are things that you do agree with as far as the Zeitgeist movement? Um, I, like I said before, I used to really embrace the entire thing. I, I love the fact that these movies are out there. I highly recommend, if anybody hasn't seen them, to watch all three of them. I've watched all three of them multiple times. Um, the the the, the be- it, it seems like the beginnings of the second and third one I agree with totally, and then they start to get into the uh, the, the resource-based economy, which obviously I have some differences with. But 
Um, I, the zeitgeist movement, I like that people are working together. Um, I like that information is rapidly spreading and it's all free. Um, I, that, that's fantastic. I like that, uh, that people are thinking about these issues. Um, most people just want to think about football or whatever. I mean, the Patriots played today. Yay, I don't really care. You know, I, I, the, the zeitgeist movement is encouraging people to start to think about these, uh, the monetary system and environmental destruction. Um, just because of that, I, I would support the the, uh, the zeitgeist movement. The that the I, I who knows how many people are um, are have been affected by this. I think for every one person who might say yes, I agree with you, there are probably ten who don't say anything but do agree with you. That's the case with uh, any comment on an article. You know, there are a thousand people who read it who didn't comment, and we have. I mean, we 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 agree that the system today is harmful and, and it needs to go, that is, that's half the battle. Um, I, I like the idea, as a, come, as a human perspective, from a human perspective, excuse me, I like the idea of a resource-based economy. It sounds really great. Um, I just have serious concerns about how it would, uh, it would affect nature because I, I don't view the world just as a guy who's trying to get ahead or, or trying to have a very comfortable life. I view the earth as a system that that we are just a small part of and i don't think the earth should be organized around people i think the earth should just we should just let it be the earth is the earth we live on it and we 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 take from it only what we need and we respect it otherwise um but i as as far as social movements go i have really i would say 90 percent positive things to say about the zeitgeist movement I mean, if, if more people were doing, if I, I say this all the time to people who get discouraged about activism, if everyone was doing what you were doing, the world would be a different place. Um, even if, 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 if you don't think people are reading, listening, and watching, they are. And progress is progress, even if it's painfully slow. And we're in, in, in the United States especially, we are used to immediate gratification. That doesn't always happen with social movements. So... To anybody who gets discouraged, I say just keep going. People are listening. People are paying attention, and change is always slow. Yep, I agree with that. I think I think though that a change will definitely be facilitated a lot better if people can have more open conversations like this, where we can respect each other as human beings and our rights to our own views, and to focus more on trying to persuade people through the evidence rather than only through uh, you know just dominance. Uh, games, logical fallacies, lies, propaganda, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that kind of is, like, honestly, beyond anything else, um, more or less, uh, I'd say that that beyond anything else, to me anyway, is one of the critical things that's important. And I think that's another thing that I'd have to say, as far as being a force for positive change, that I have to defend technology for, is information technology. You know, there are frequently times, for example, like I was watching the TV show Breaking Bad not long ago, and there's this point when uh, the character Walt is basically given this little cabin out in the middle of a snow-covered, you know, mountainous region that's all his on some acreage of land, and I was like, man, I could totally live there. The only thing I would miss would be the Internet. You know, my ability to communicate with people all over the world. 
you know, and, and that's, I think, uh, you know, another example of, of the ways that technology improves society as a whole. You know, that's the reason why people in Arabic countries, for example, were able to organize some of their protests was, you know, through social media. You know, it's the reason why so much information is spread. And don't get me wrong, there's also a lot of disinformation and crap that gets spread, you know, but it doesn't change the fact that in the end, um, it's far superior, uh, basically, um, to to be able to share the way that we are. You know, something I talk about on V Radio all the time. Um, and is that we had conversations uh, where I have people who are literally all over the world. You know, like people who in many different countries, thanks to technology like Skype, who can all participate in a conversation, people that I've met and exchanged information with that I would never meet otherwise. You know, and that is something I think that is definitely an evolution on the part of mankind that I think is, is something that's, it has too many beneficial um, effects so far as mankind understanding one another and exchanging critical information that I could ever really get rid of it. You know, I could never stand by and allow that to happen. Um, well, I mean, you make a big, you make a good point, but but what you're doing is you're piggybacking technology on the terrible way things are today. I mean, I think the fact that uh, somebody in Ireland, which is however many thousand miles away from the United States, is speaking English is ridiculous. And it's, it, and I, I, you know, the 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 good thing about things being so bad is this work to be done everywhere. Even small work can be done. But if you if you consider it just as if if all this stuff wasn't here, you know if if uh, all the uh, if we weren't all debt slaves trying to scratch out a living competing against each other, um, I, I don't I, just looking at it through a primitivist size or even an animal's eyes, I don't think the technology is useful. I mean, I don't want to get into a big argument. We're just going to rehash old territory. <laughs> but that's sure. that's kind of how I feel. Is it? Of course, it looks good. The internet looks great compared to the rest of the craft that's going on today. Communication looks great in facilitating um, social movements, uh, but it, it, the, on, the only unfortunate part of that is that we would need to facilitate social movements at all. Well, um, I think we've basically uh, concluded everything that I wanted to conclude in this conversation, and I'm glad that I had you on. And I um, Can you please tell people where they can hear some more of your stuff and look some of your videos? I, I think in particular some of the anti-capitalist arguments would be very interesting to people from the um, Venus Project Zeitgeist Movement point of view. Absolutely. I am vehemently anti-capitalist. Even this new capitalism free market crap that people are putting out um, – my YouTube channel is www.youtube.com forward slash Church of Iron. I'm, a, I'm, I'm actually a competitive strongman, and that's how the channel started. And the, um, I, I know it's not very primitive as to me. I've, I've gotten so many, oh, you're such a hypocrite, because yeah, yeah, yeah. And my, my, the blog that, I'm, that I keep where I put um, daily thoughts is anprim like anarcho-primitivist, A-N-P-R-I-M dot blogspot dot com. You can uh, leave a comment there if you want to contact me. I'm happy to talk to anybody about this subject. All right, excellent. Well then, um, thank you everybody for tuning in tonight. And uh, this has been an excellent edition of V-Radio. Um, if this is your first time checking out V-Radio, please check out my website, v-radio.org. Uh, there you can listen to archives of more shows like this one. 
V-Radio is seeking donations for the month of December, so if you liked what you heard, please consider contributing a little bit. There are literally thousands of listeners to V-Radio. If all of them contribute even just a small amount, then it would easily make the very small amount that I ever ask for in donations per month. Um, And uh, thanks again, everybody, and thank you for being on, Chris. Thank you very much, Neil. I appreciate it. No problem.